What is going on? Happy Monday. Another week at the salt mines. We are. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Fresh off of my weekend-long battle with drain flies. The phone number is 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. By the way, uh, a new piece of information here in case, I mean, I keep up with all of this stuff when, I, when I'm when i not battling the drain flies, but um, I do keep up with this. So you don't have to, because you know me, I'm a giver. Two quarters of negative economic growth, which is a ridiculous term, negative, yeah, negative growth. That's not growth, right? That's contraction, but Two quarters of negative growth is no longer indicative of a recession. That used to be for my entire adult life. That was always the definition of a recession was two quarters of negative growth. And I always thought, wow, that's a stupid definition because negative growth is contraction. So obviously that would be, you know, contraction, a recession. That would be bad, quote unquote, bad news. And I'm not a fan of you know, limiting economic indicators or individual reports into a good uh, economic news or bad economic news. But when the GDP contracts or experiences negative growth for uh, back-to-back quarters, that's six months. That's no bueno. And uh, that's always been bad. Everybody kind of agreed on that. But not anymore. Not anymore in in today's day and age when we can no longer define what a woman is or what a man is. uh, I guess it makes sense that now we're going to open up the definition of recession because the people that uh, that believe they should be in charge, I guess, don't like the definition because the current definition or I guess the previous definition of two quarters of negative growth that. People might judge them according to that definition and think, oh, wow, these guys, they're pretty terrible. We've got we've got a recession down and they're in charge, so we should throw them out. So they don't want that, and so we're going to have to redefine what it means to be in a recession. According to the White House, which put out, uh, they were talking about in, in a statement, they were like, yeah, the economy is so much bigger than GDP. Yeah, but really not. Like, that's your gross domestic product. That's, I mean, that's a really big one. It's like everything that you make, everything you sell, all your goods and services, it, it, it's all of it. So while obviously it's not capturing, say, unemployment, right? It captures what the employed people are making. And if the employed people are not making enough in the unemployed people can't get employment to make more stuff or provide more services, then the GDP would capture that component of it, right? So the GDP is a pretty good, it's a pretty good stat. Just, you know, it's a pretty good stat as far as economic stats go. Uh, But now, sorry, you've been canceled, GDP. Sorry. GDP is now no longer a good stat to look at, especially if it's gone negative for uh, two consecutive Quarters, which really that does make sense, right? Who wants to hang around such a negative indicator all the time? Gosh, <laughs> not this president. That's who I'll tell you who doesn't want to hang. Yeah, exactly. These re- the, the, think of it like this: we saw something very similar with the term court packing. You remember that old term? Well, I mean, if 
Yeah, I mean, if you went to school, I don't know, within the last 20 years, you probably have never heard the term court packing because that would indicate you like were taught history or something. But uh, court packing for my entire life, because it predated me by like, I don't know, a century, half a century, was a term that was used when uh, FDR, drunk on his power, uh, tried to pack the Supreme Court. He wanted to add a bunch of extra seats so he could put people that were loyal to him on the court. And uh, then they would ostensibly rule in his favor to say that things that weren't in the Constitution or were expressly prohibited by the Constitution uh, were now allowed to be done by his administration. And the threat worked. The, the U.S. Supreme Court said, OK, OK, we'll go ahead and give you what you want. We'll rule these things to be right when they are actually wrong, uh, just so you don't pack the court with another, you know, six members or seven members, whatever it was. I don't remember the number. That was what court packing was. Court packing was when you expanded the court to stuff more people in to pack the court with more loyalists to you. You know, like like Donald Trump did after he killed Merrick Garland. Exactly, right. That's the exact same thing. The court, <laughs> the court packing had a definition, a widely assumed, mutually understandable definition. But now that we're going to have two quarters of back-to-back negative growth or contraction by the uh, of the GDP, now we have to redefine the word recession because it's just not convenient, much like the redefinition of the term woman in, or mother into birthing person, right? I don't make the rules here, people. I'm sorry. What is occurring is obviously gaslighting of the highest order. That's what is occurring. But we'll see if it gets uh, uh, any traction. We'll see because they're they're running this up the flagpole, you know, like they did with the reproductive rights instead of pro-choice. Now they're saying options like they're 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 constantly changing the language, which indicates, you know, once people figure out what it is you're talking about, they tend to react negatively, kind of like the GDP. And then they don't want to listen to you anymore. and They're not agreeing with you anymore. So, all right, we're going to have a different word. And see, now we're not talking about partial birth abortion at nine months. No, no. Now we're talking about reproductive rights. Remember, they tried reproductive justice. Remember that one? It eh, never took. Sort of like the GDP. We'll find out later this week if we are actually, you know, in the back-to-back quarters of negative growth, which doesn't have a word to define it any longer. We'll keep you posted on that. I do want to thank a Twitter user, at Ride a Lion, Ride a Lion, which seems pretty dangerous, but um, they sent me this uh, this next piece from Christianity Today. Fantasy role-playing is hurting America. Talk 1110-993-WBT, The Pete Callender Show. You can also email me, Pete, at thepetecallendershow.com or on Twitter, at Pete Callender, where I got this uh, link to an uh, an editorial, I guess, or a column by a fella, uh, well, the, the Twitter user that sent it to me was at Ride a Lion, and the headline of the piece is called Fantasy Role Playing is Hurting America. Um... And it's by Russell Moore. And he said as a kid in the 80s, he had heard about um, Dungeons and Dragons, D&D, as it's known. Um, 
and the evangelical elders in his church were warning about this game. And I remember some of that. Even though I was up in New York, there weren't a whole lot of, uh, you know, evangelical warnings against it. But I do remember there was there was something attached to it. And I never quite figured it out because I think I was uh, I'm younger than this fellow writing, I believe. And so I was not, uh, I guess, when when all of the stuff kind of first started and the uh, the criticisms first started around D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, I, I was too young. And then by the time people kind of gave up on that stuff and they had, I guess, shifted focus because there was a lot of hysteria at the time from the every kid is getting kidnapped, but we're still going to, you know, just let them loose for the whole day riding around the neighborhood. But um, uh, and then the D&D and then um, uh, what was the other one? Well, the, the, the satanic music and the heavy metal music, that was the other one. And then that prompted Tipper Gore and the PR, PR or PMRC, PMRC, right? The testimony in front of Congress, all of that. Like th- this was the this was the mass panic at the time. And I was pretty young. I kind of remember some of it. I remember D. Snyder with Twisted Sister. My older brother is like he's a big fan at the time and, and Twisted Sister was all in on that stuff, you know, fighting against Al Gore's wife as she uh, you know, tried to stop his creation of the internet, but whatever. Like I think that's what that was about. So I was not really aware of this moral panic going on over Dungeons and Dragons. Now, that being said, I admit there was a period in my life I played Dungeons and Dragons for like a year. And it was fun. It was a way to hang out, you know, and role play and you roll some dice and you got to make characters. This was before, you know, video games before like Pac-Man. You know, like this was the Pac-Man era. So we, we didn't have a lot of stuff to choose from. All right. So I played Dungeons and Dragons for like a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, and then that was it. And then, you know, got into high school, whatever. And that was it. And I never played again. Now in the 2020s, Russell Moore says, I'm, I'm wondering if my evangelical elders weren't partly right about the way fantasy role-playing can paganize a culture, but not in the way they expected. There's a different way. So he ties this into, now just hear this out, I think this is a pretty interesting path to follow, because there was an article in The Atlantic by a reporter named Jennifer Sr., and she's exploring this similar thought in relation to the rise of Steve Bannon, who is currently indicted on charges of contempt of Congress uh, because uh, he refused to answer questions about Fast and Furious, the drug or the uh, gun running thing. Oh no, I'm sorry. No, that was Eric Holder. No, he. Yeah, sorry, totally different. He doesn't. He doesn't go to trial. Eric Holder doesn't go to trial. Um. Anyway, Steve Bannon. Yeah, Steve Bannon is charged with contempt of Congress uh, because he. Uh, is not cooperating as the uh, show tribunal. Uh, sorry, did I say that? Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, I meant it. All right. Um, he's not participating. He's not cooperating in the way that they want him to, which is uh, to sit for some interview and then let them selectively edit it and put it out in a packaged narrative to make him look guilty of something, whatever. Maybe he is. I don't know. Putting aside what you may think about Bannon, Russell Moore says, I was struck by one section of the article that explains much of what's happening in America right now. 
Jennifer Sr. points to a documentary that was made in 2018 in which Bannon explains to a filmmaker how, when he was working in the internet gaming industry, he was surprised to learn just how many people are devoted to playing multiplayer online games. Bannon interprets this intensity through the grid of a hypothetical man. And this is pretty commonplace. This happens uh, like there was, um, you know, it, it, for example, radio sales. There was not here, but uh, radio sales. Uh, I've seen, you know, they come up with sort of an archetypal character. And this is Joe and Joe drives this car and he makes this amount of money and he has this wife and how many kids and where does he live and his favorite bands. Like there's a whole demographic profile set up of the type of audience that you have. So that's what this grid is. And he calls him Dave from Accounts Payable. Dave from Accounts Payable. And who is Dave? Well, talks about Dave a couple days after Dave has died. So Dave is dead. And some preacher from a church or some guy from a funeral home who has never met Dave goes in and gives a 10-minute eulogy, says a couple prayers, and that's Dave. This is what Bannon said. He contrasts this boring real-life Dave from Accounts Payable with Dave's online gaming persona named Ajax. Now, Ajax is tough and warlike, and when he dies in the fantasy, there's a funeral pyre and thousands of people come to mourn Ajax the warrior. Now, Bannon asks, who's more real? Dave in accounting or Ajax? Bannon realizes that some people, particularly disaffected men, actively prefer and better identify with the online versions of themselves. Oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Apparently a bunch of uh, young climate activists that work on Capitol Hill as staffers went to Chuck Schumer's office demanding that he take action now and save our lives. Time's running out. We have no more time. And he zip-tied them and arrested them. Like an act with real zip-ties, not like with the new... Invisible zip tie technology that AOC, that they used to arrest her and Ilhan Omar, not like that. These were the old school ones that actually kept you from raising your fist in the air as you did your uh, PR perp walk. Arresting his own party members. Which is pretty on brand for leftists. It really, that's usually what happens. Um, All right, so Dave in accounting or his online profile, Ajax. Some people, particularly disaffected men, actively prefer and better identify with the online versions of themselves. Because, think about it, online, you could basically do whatever you want to do, these open-world games. And for folks who are, I'm not being pejorative here, but for folks who are old, or not, not you know, older than Gen X, because Gen Xers know what these types of games are. Think uh, Grand Theft Auto, Okay, well, that's it's a game. It's not not strictly a charge that you get. Anyway, uh, there are a whole bunch of these open-world multiplayer online games. You create a character and a profile, whatever, and you go in there, and it's just, when I say open-world, I mean open-world. The games now have become so massive. There's one, I, I it's a space game a friend of mine told me about. I don't remember, I don't remember the name of it. He would play it all the time. It's... They actually have partnered up with NASA and 
the actual planets are in there and like it's just it, it they call it procedurally generated worlds minecraft did this as well i'm sure you've heard of minecraft it was all the rage with the kitties um and the uh, the games the computer just generates a new world when you walk into its field of vision it just auto generates new landscape villages enemies whatever so it, it it's just random some of it is some of them are you know some areas are built whatever i'm going down the rabbit hole here so bannon steve bannon tapped into this thing that he learned when he was working for internet gaming companies and then when he acquired breitbart news he said hey look at the comments section they're basically avatars these are people's online persona they are behaving like ajax not dave from accounts payable properly directed they've got political power this was his this was his strategy he talks about this he called it the gamification of politics he says i want dave in accounting to be ajax in his life so in this piece uh jennifer senior wrote at the atlantic uh, talking about this theory she argues that january 6th is the distillation of this role-playing fantasy the angry, howling hordes arrive as real-life avatars, cosplaying the role of rebels in face paint and fur. They start, Now, to be fair, there was only one dressed like that, but, ooh, boy. Uh, they stormed the Capitol while an enemy army tried to beat them away. This is hardly new, by the way. It's not limited to any political, ideological spectrum, either. Um, she then talks about, or he talks about uh, David Horowitz, talking about... Uh, Red diaper babies. You know what a red diaper baby is? It's Barack Obama. Somebody who was raised by communists. Oh, I know you're not allowed to say that, even though he does in his book, right? He talks at length about all the communists that raised him, right? He's a red diaper baby. So the account uh, about uh, what drew their American parents or grandparents to the Communist Party during the Depression or post-World War II era includes something along the lines of what Daniel uh, David Horowitz described in his parents' neighborhood Communist Party cell meetings that used to occur in the basement, right? Here's what Horowitz wrote, quote, It was in this subterranean activity that the romanticism of their youth finally got to express itself. Here they lived outside the norms of other mortals, breathed the intoxicating air of a world revolution, and plotted their impossible dreams. In the cell, they were given secret names for the day when the party would go underground and the illegal business of the revolution begins as they all believed it would. In such meetings, these communists were not school teachers or longshoremen or electricians or lawyers. They were, in their own minds, underground fighters for a socialist utopia to come. And of course, while these American communists play-acted as Soviet James Bonds, the real Soviet Union was off murdering and starving its own people to death, right? So Bannon's strategy for turning... The, you know, Dave from Accounts Payable into Ajax for turning the former culture into the latter culture is to sow doubts about every institution. This was what Bannon talked about as well. He believed that an unraveling is necessary for rejuvenation. The plan is to, in his words, leave a smoldering crater where our institutions once were. And uh, check, (laughs) right? The institutions are indeed smoldering and cratering. And that is not all Steve Bannon's fault, by the way, 
right? <laughs> I'm not pinning this on Bannon. These institutions have done quite a fine job of destroying themselves. Thank you very much. And also from within, from leftists within. So people, let me skip down uh, later in the piece. He says people are looking for meaning, for significance, and bigger storylines to which in which to belong, and finding them in the very things that are bringing down institution after institution. And he goes through some of uh, some of them. But this gets to something I talk about all the time, which is in the vein of school shooting and mass shootings, right? It's men without purpose. To a lesser degree, women, but I think women by and large, oh, trigger warning, I'm about to offer up a a generalized, maybe stereotypical shorthand for the differences between men and women. But women tend to... Um, uh, uh, they they tend to describe themselves and see themselves uh, through the prism of their relationships, who they are and who they're with and that sort of thing. And men tend to define ourselves by the hats we wear, to quote the old book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Right? We, what do we do? What's our job? What's at the core of that philosophy of that, that assessment is our purpose. What is all, what does all of this mean? What are we doing here? And through my work, I am given purpose. I have I have taken on purpose, responsibility, and that sort of thing. But if you're day from accounts payable, what does that say? And if you've got nothing else going on except life as Ajax online, what are you going to gravitate towards? The one that gives you purpose, the one that actually gives you a score, maybe some fake money or something, and that's what tells you you're successful. And you get all these people online that are happy to see you. You know, when you get online and you're like, oh, hey, what's going on? Unlike accounts payable. When you walk into the office and everybody says, oh, here comes here comes Dave. He's going to turn down the thermostat again. Now, part of the problem with this whole description, Dave from accounts payable, lies in its description of where he works. See, in an age where one's worth is often subconsciously attributed to your income, your education, your position, your social capital... Can we really be surprised that Dave would seek some way to be known and loved and seen? And if he can't do that as Dave, is it any surprise he'd try to be somebody else? C.S. Lewis talked about paganism. He thought paganism was a better place to start with proclaiming meaning rather than just secularism. Because even paganism acknowledges a reality beyond the material. Secularism doesn't. But what happens when we discover something that mixes, you know, the pagan sense of meaning with the secular loss of hope, all the while thinking itself to be Christian, right? This is where Russell Moore goes with it. Fantasy role-playing. Is it hurting America? This is a piece by Russell Moore at uh, Christianity Today, and he's commenting and expanding upon a piece that uh, was written in The Atlantic, uh, which talked about Steve Bannon and his interview that he gave in a documentary from a couple of years ago where Bannon identified sort of a common type of personality that uh, populates the comment sections in uh, in certain news publications. In this case, it was Breitbart, and he went after Breitbart and took it over. 
uh, but he came to identify sort of the mindset when he did work in the internet gaming world. And then he called it the gamification of politics. And so what Russell Moore's point here is talking about paganism um, and how paganism has a, it has a recognition that there is something, that there is a, a reality beyond the material, right? You're praying to trees or something, right? <laughs> Whatever. But you recognize there's something besides just this thing in my hand, this materialism, right? There's a spirit, there's a whatever, auras and that sort of thing. But he says, a Christian vision of heaven is not Valhalla with wine or grape juice instead of mead. Valhalla and almost every other pagan vision of an afterlife looks backward. It's the echo and the celebration of the warrior's success in the life that was. The kingdom of God doesn't find meaning there. It brings meaning by joining our stories with an altogether different narrative, which is the story of Jesus, right? His life is our life. His glory, our glory. Jesus redefines what wisdom and power really are by embracing an object found most baffling by the Romans and other pagans of his day, the cross. When we start to really understand and embody that in our churches, maybe fewer Daves from accounts payable will find their identities in accounts payable, or maybe not even Ajax online, their online gaming persona. Maybe more of them will see that there's glory in the ordinary, in giving your life away for the people you love. I talk about this too. I talk about time. When you start thinking about time in terms of units of your life, that's what time is. You don't get any more of it. You don't know how much you have of it. It is a precious commodity. Maybe more people will see that there's a cloud of witnesses all around, but that we don't need for them to cheer for us. We just need to bear witness alongside them to the one who endured the cross. A, he says, our culture of fantasy role-playing is leading us to some perilous places. Sadly, we often repl- uh, replicate it even within the church. There are dragons indeed, both within and without. Yet sometimes the dragon is not the one we're slaying in our fantasies, but the one offering us the illusion of belonging the illusion of glory and meaning, purpose. And much of that, this idea of purpose, this is a dirty secret. Nobody likes to acknowledge it. It's responsibility. Taking on responsibilities gives you a sense of purpose. What else do you, des- what else do you describe as parenthood, right? You have responsibilities, you, you now have to take care of this other human being. They are solely reliant on you. That is your responsibility. And that gives you purpose. And look, I can tell you, I mean, th- I've, I view this job as one that requires responsibility. I don't get on my show ever, except if I'm, you know, okay. I do make some jokes. I do have some laughs. Having a laugh. All right, I do that. But... There's great responsibility. I try to always make sure I've done my prep for a topic. I try to always make sure the stuff I'm presenting is as close to the truth as I can ascertain, right? 
knowing that nobody can know everything. I'm not God. Contrary to what some of my fans on Twitter say. No, I'm kidding. But that's I try I try to uh, I try to take some of the the ethics that I uh, learned from the church, also from philosophy, from journalism. Uh, I know. All right, I'll just, there you go. Okay, okay, okay. But I try to I try to make sure that all of that right comes through in what I cover and how I cover it. And this has given me purpose. This is part of my purpose. I don't know what I would do otherwise. I don't. I've always been involved in media and journalism. I've always wanted to do it. So this has always been uh, sort of how I focus my time. And, you know, people have asked me over the years, too. They've said, oh, Pete, are you going to, you know, apply for I remember, well, Jason Lewis, he filled in last uh, Thursday and Friday, I remember. And I was a reporter here at WBT when Jason used to work here. And one time he asked me, are you going to apply for this job that had opened up at uh, CBS Radio Networks in New York? And uh, we were CBS affiliate at that time here at WBT. And he asked, was I going to apply for the gig? And I said, no, I don't want to go back to New York. And he said, it's a bigger market. I said, I don't care. Local government needs p- good people to monitor it. And if everybody who's good goes someplace else, what then for the people in the markets they left behind, you know? So I'm kind of like a rash. I stuck around. <laughs> 